Good morning. Is God good? The others are in the second round. Can't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I actually can't believe it. God is good. You know what? We have the opportunity to do even something better. We get to hear from God's word this morning. We have so much to unpack that we're just going to go into it right away. I'm going to ask you to listen carefully as we read the portion of scripture that we have. It is indeed powerful, so please listen intently. It is Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26, and we begin reading. So I say, let the Holy Spirit guide your lives. Then you won't be doing, or sorry, then you won't be doing what your sinful nature craves. The sinful nature wants to do evil which is just the opposite of what the Spirit wants. And the Spirit gives us desires that are the opposite of what the sinful nature desires. These two forces are constantly fighting each other. So you are not free to carry out your good intentions. But when you are directed by the Spirit, you are not under obligation to the law of Moses. When you follow the desires of your sinful nature, the results are very clear. Sexual immorality, impurity, lustful pleasures, idolatry, sorcery, hostility, quarreling, jealousy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambition, dissension and division, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone who lives that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have nailed the passions and desires of their sinful nature to his cross and crucified them there. Since we're living by the Spirit, let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let us not become conceited and provoke one another or be jealous of one another. This has become the heart of even the scripture verses that we're trying to memorize. There's so much going on here that, quite honestly, I was, I was a bit lost. I didn't even know how to begin to unpack the layers and layers and layers that are hidden in this portion of Scripture. In fact, its entirety, in some way, is a reflective cold notes version of the entire Bible itself. So where do we begin? Well, let's begin at the beginning and begin to ask a series of questions that lays the foundation back to what is being said here. So let's go all the way back and ask the most basic, fundamental question. Who is God? Who is he? What is he? Moses had that question even though he was being approached by God at the burning bush. And he asked him what his name was, which was a different way of asking the exact same question. And God's answer to him was, I am who I am. Okay. That kind of just went over Moses' head, goes over my head. What does that mean? You know, to be honest with you, I don't really 100% know. And I think that's the point. God is anything and everything he wants to be. 
He is beyond our understanding. How can I begin to put my mind around the idea that he was before the beginning of time? How he can know everything that was, everything it is, and everything that will be. Who transcends time and space. Who's perfect in power, perfect in energy, perfect in his blessing, perfect in understanding, perfect in mercy, perfect in glory. He's so unique, the Bible just says he's holy. Besides him, there is nothing else. There's nothing that compared to him. So how can we begin to understand the full depth of who he is? He is beyond wonderful and powerful. I think that's exactly the kind of name that God gave himself to Moses. So he is all these things. But is he relational? Does he care about us? Well, in the first book of John, it says this. God is love. God is love. What does that mean? It comes down to this. God is interested in you. He thinks you're important. He wants to know you and be known by him. He wants you to be with him now and forever with him in heaven. He really thinks you're special. So the next question is, well, well what makes us so special then? Why would he love us as human beings? Well, the Bible says he made us in his own image. And in fact, when God created the universe, he spoke it into existence. But when it came to creating you and I, the human race, he didn't speak at all. It became very personal for him. It says that he went to the ground and with his own hands formed human hands and made us in his image. And he breathed life into Adam, which was a spirit that is indestructible like his a being that is beyond your five senses and this carbon-based life form that you see right now and that you have, there is something else that's behind that. So when you leave this world, you are not dead. There's a part of you that lives forever. And God wants that part to be with him forever because God is relational. He has made us to be compatible with him in relationship to him. He wants to have a meaningful relationship with us and it's meant to be rich, it's meant to be sincere, and it's meant to be deep. It's meant to be wonderful. That is why he has made us. And because he loves us, he has given us something powerful. He's given us a choice to make. Because how can you really love someone unless you have the choice to make it, the freedom to do so? If God didn't give us that choice, he would have just made us robotic, like a minion or something. But because God wants us to love him, he has to give us the opportunity, the power to make a choice. And that choice is to either love him or reject him. It's defined in the scriptures that this love relationship that we can have with God is simply obeying and following his instructions in our lives. But unfortunately, we have all not made a positive choice. Rather than following his path of purity, we've decided to do it our own way. Some will do it very openly. They don't believe in God. don't want to have anything to do with them. are instantly repulsed. And others just do it sort of subconsciously. But whatever the case, all of us have drifted away from his ideals and have no longer been found pure in his sight. We have chosen otherwise. And that otherwise, the Bible calls sin. So it brings us to the next question. What is sin exactly? And what exactly is its consequences? Stay with me. We're building a base to back to what we're talking about. Some of these things are, 
You probably heard many times, and for some of you, you're hearing it as if it was for the very first time, as I know the Lord's presence is here. So what is sin exactly? It is imperfection and actions that are not loving towards others and towards God. It is this sense of impurity that gets in the way. And the Bible has said that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And the wages of that, the consequences of that, is death. Remember, God has made us a physical body, but also a spiritual being at the same time. Yes, we're fully aware that we are mortals and that we have a certain lifespan as mortals. But there is another death that follows, a spiritual death that's eternal. And that eternal death is a separation from having relationship with God, which is exactly what his intent is for you and I. But we have created some form of barrier by our actions. It's contamination. He made us originally to be compatible with them, but now we're no longer compatible to have relationship with him. And it's on me and it's on you. What is sin? It's access denied. There are a few places in the world that have incredible levels of restricted access. There are 59 labs on earth, and they're called these special labs. I'm sure there's more than 59 labs, but this particular type of lab, there's only 59 of them, and they're called BSL-4 labs. I don't even know what that means, but there's only 59 of them, and there's only one in Canada, and that's in Winnipeg. What goes on in these labs? They contain the most dangerous biomedical materials on the planet. And those who have access to it would be incredibly marginal. The qualifications that you would have to be even be able to be in an institution like that would be remarkable to even understand. And the protocols that would take for you to even enter into a facility like that would be also incredibly complex. It's amazingly restricted. But there are some places where human compatibility cannot occur. There is no way you can go into these areas. One of them would be obviously there's some areas in a nuclear power plant you can't go because it's too dangerous. But there are other places in the world that are so clean you can't enter that area. When we lived in Toronto, uh, a cousin of mine, her husband I got to know a little bit more when we were living there, his name is Kevin. Class A act. If Kevin were here, you would like him. He's one of those guys, there's nothing you can't dislike about him. He's that kind of guy. And he worked for Mitsubishi. And I remember his stories that he told me about working for Mitsubishi, which is a massive, massive company involved in all sorts of fields, but he was involved in technology and development. And I remember him telling me about his torturous flights from Toronto to Tokyo. That just sounds like pain. He loved his job, but he hated traveling there, and he always went back and forth, back and forth to Japan. But on one occasion, they gave him the honor of going to a microchip processing facility. He said that the, the rigors that was required for him just to get into the building and then to go through different stages of cleaning and changing clothes to only end up in a simple room that had a glass wall. He said the glass wall, he couldn't perceive how thick it was, but it was super thick. And when he looked inside there, which was the whole reason why he did all that cleaning, so he had the privilege to stand in front of this big sheet of glass. And inside was a robotic room 
where microchip processing was going through a very, very sensitive part of its program or part of its um, stage of development. You could not enter that area. No matter how clean you make yourself, the chance of risk of having a microbe on your suit or some particle of dust would literally destroy the work that was being done in that room. Amazing. You see, God's presence is like that on steroids. We cannot get into his presence because of the incompatibility the dirt that we have, we can't wash it off. We can't change our circumstances. It is irreversible. It says in the Bible that all our righteous deeds are like polluted garments. You will not hear that in any other religion in the world. Every other religion in the world will tell you, yeah, you can do it. It's kind of like a hockey game. As long as you've got more points on the positive side than on the negative side, you kind of win, maybe. But that is not the case from what the Bible says, who God is. Our situation is just that bad. The only one that can make a difference is God himself. The only question is, does he want to? And the answer is yes, in the person of Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Our next question in this, who is Jesus other than a historical person? Who is this individual who walks through the pages of time towards us here and now that we can understand who he really is? Jesus, as it would be described in the book of John, it was not called Jesus originally, but the Word. Capital W, capital O, capital R, capital D. And it says this, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It goes on to saying that he was involved in all the acts of creation. And all that has been done, and all that's been made, has been made by him and through him. And later on it says that the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And John talks about, I've seen him, I've touched him, he's the real deal. He is God that has become a human being. Who is Jesus? 100% man, 100% God at the same time. And he was born of the virgin birth, lived a sinless life as only God could do. And yet you would think about this being some sort of massive intimidating thing. But the fact is, we wouldn't have recognized him if we saw him. The Bible says that there was nothing about his, his appearance that would attract us to him. Nothing about him in a crowded room before we would have missed him. He did that on purpose. He did that so that he could walk a life exactly like the life that you and I have lived. All the good, all the bad, he's experienced it all. Bible says he was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief. So when people say God doesn't understand what I've gone through, yes, he does. Yes, he does. Why? Because he loves you. God is love. You never forget that. But his purpose in coming wasn't just to experience life that you and I have, the good, the bad, the ugly. He came for a very specific reason, and that was to go to the cross to reverse the situation that we have created. And it was done there on the cross. Well, what's the cross now? I know some of this seems elemental, but this is important for us to go through it step by step. 
The cross, from an historical point of view, is a place of suffering, pain, punishment, and death. The Romans developed it. It is a cruel form of justice, so cruel, in fact, that justice itself became a crime in itself. It's just that bad. It's one of the most awful historical symbols in human history, and yet, it adorns every church. Seriously, what's the matter with us Christians? Why do we have that? You see, there's a difference from the historical cross, the Roman cross, and Christ's cross. Normally, criminals and dissidents of the political system of Rome would die on a cross, but Christ was neither. He was perfect. He was blameless. He came to the cross to be a substitute for you and I to take that penalty of death upon himself physically on the cross so that he could gain his back that access that we have been denied so that we can come back into friendship, back into relationship with the Creator because he loves us. God became one of us to reverse a situation that you and I can't change. You are that important to him. And that is a wonderful truth. Now we look at the cross, not for what the historical cross is, but for what it really is for those who believe. It is a second chance. It is hope. It is a new life. It is a new beginning. And through the cross and his death and resurrection, we come to the other side. You see, you have to understand, some of you have been involved in home renovations. You know what I'm talking about? More paint, rip out the carpet, etc., etc., etc. But you could come into a piece of property that's so dilapidated, its foundation is so bad, it's, the wood is rotting. The only way you can fix it is tear it down, rip out all the foundation, and build a new house. God is not in the renovating business. He's in the restoring process, the rebuilding of things. The Bible says it's a new life, a new birth, and he offers it to us free of charge. It's a gift, in fact, the Bible says. The gift that God offers us is having eternal life with him. And it's a wonderful grace. For it says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and this, not of yourselves. It is a gift from God, not of works, lest any person would boast. God has done something for you and I, a friendship that's eternal. He's paid it all for us and has made that possible by the cross, the cross, the cross of Christ. I don't know about you, that puts a smile on my face. The older I get, I realize how much God loves us. And it's becoming a growing theme, and I trust that it is for you too. You couldn't possibly have more in life than having God in your life. Possibly. And he made that possible for us through the cross. A new beginning. A fresh start. The old has gone and new has come. What does that mean? It means the way we look at life, the things we thought were so much fun, we're not interested in those things as much. We're more interested in following what God wants us to do. Instead of living wild and living recklessly, there's some sort of supernatural maturity that we see beyond it and go, you know what, that is a train wreck waiting to happen. I don't want anything to do with that. I want to go over here. I want to walk towards life. The attitudes that we have, the compulsions that we had inside for self-absorption starts getting beaten back because now you're thinking about, Lord, what do you want to do with my life? There is a transformation of your values, the way you think. It happens. You're a new person. 
You've been set free from sin. But here's a big question now. Why is it for you and me, my dear beloved believers in Christ, why is it then that we still struggle with sin? Why is it that sometimes those things that we've been set free from have a way of kind of coming back and haunting us over and over again? This brings us back to what we're talking about in Galatians chapter 5. You see, there is a struggle that goes on inside of us, and it can wreak havoc inside of us. There is a desire in our hearts now to follow the Lord, but there's something in the past that keeps on pulling us back. It might be some form of habitual behavior of some form. It could be some addiction to substances. It could be something that happened in your childhood that you cannot get past. And yet somehow Christ has set me free from that bitterness and that anger. And yet somehow I get reminded and it pulls me back. I want to tell you something. Christ has come to set you free. And how important that is. But yet there's this struggle that exists. Romans chapter 7 is a great chapter. I don't think there's a greater concentration to the word I and me anywhere in the Bible than in this portion of Scripture. It talks about the struggling Christian. The person who's been transformed, who's been set free, but something ain't right, man. Like something's not going right. And he goes on with this sort of language. He goes, you know what? I know God's laws, and I desire to do that. I want to do those things. And I don't want to do certain things I used to do. But the things I don't want to do, I keep on doing them. I want to do that stuff over here, but I don't do that. I keep going over here. What's the matter with me? I can tell there's a battle going on inside. It goes on with this kind of language over and over again. Ultimately, he culminates it with these words. So I find the law at work. When I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my innermost being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not isolated in Romans chapter 7. Hebrews 12 talks about it as a struggle. James chapter 4 talks about it as a battle. And 1 Peter chapter 2 considers this a war. This is a struggle that we have. Some this and some that. This entire series is about living free. And this is exactly at the heart of things. Living free from the past. Living free from the punishment of sin. And living free to live a life that honors and pleases God as if it is like automatic and natural for us to happen. God has called us to a life of love and peace and mercy and kindness. And for some reason, when I try to do it on myself, I can't find it. Does that ring true with some of you? Or is it just me and just the writers here? Somehow in our journey, out of nowhere, these handcuffs fall in our hands. We have been set free from prison, but somehow you're not able to move. And you find yourself dragging yourself back to the cross of Christ and asking God to forgive you. And you know what he does? It says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. 
And if we come before him with a true heart and a clean heart, he will forgive us again and again and again and move us to a second chance, a third chance, and a fourth chance. But sooner or later, you start to realize there's something not right about this. I shouldn't be on this treadmill. I need to be able to go back, as it says in Galatians, and take my passions and desires and have them nailed on the cross, and they stay there, and I don't have to come back to them anymore, whatever that might be. What hope do we have? Well, it says this in Romans chapter 8, literally the next page over. It gives us a completely different story from the conflict of the Christian to a victorious Christian. And it begins with these words. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because through Christ Jesus, the law of the spirit of life set me free from the law of sin and death. And then it goes on to say, but those who live according with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of the sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. And it goes on to saying, however, you are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. And the Spirit God lives in you. And then it goes on to say this remarkable thing. For you did not receive a spirit that makes you a slave again to fear. But you have received the spirit of sonship, and by that we call out, Abba, Father. What's the difference between Romans chapter 7 and Romans chapter 8? Well, exactly what we're talking about in Galatians chapter 5. The hint that we get in Romans chapter 7 is, is the word I. It is repeated over and over and over again. But when we get to Romans chapter 8, it's no longer me trying to do it anymore. I'm depending on somebody else. I'm depending on the supernatural power and presence of God being activated in the way I live, the way I think, and with every heartbeat. There is something different about a life that is yielded over to the presence of God. And then instead of me trying to do it on my own. Is this registering? I know it's kind of a long journey to get back, but we got to kind of put in the layers that the scriptures have to get us to where we really want to talk about. God has called you to let to live a power. Not your power, his power. I can't save myself. I need to depend and trust personally on what Christ did for me on the cross, like you do. But after that, the trusting doesn't stop. It's the beginning. From that point on, I need to continually, on a daily basis, reset myself to trust the Spirit of God to do a work in my life at all times. And say, Lord, help me by your power to get past my past. Or to embrace the future. Or to get past this or that. And the Spirit of God, as we trust Him on a daily basis, begins to do a supernatural work of change in our lives. We look for this massive change and it happens instantaneously and much of it does happen that way but this is a process miracle of change uh, my wife loves gardening and I bear up with it and I because I love her and I'll do it and but you know what the older I get the more I actually like gardening because it's a production of life it's a beautiful thing you know you plant a seed you roll it to the ground they don't just stand there and go, where is it? Doesn't work that way. There is a process of time 
that is also implied in growing something. And as we walk in the presence of God on a daily basis, as we yield ourselves over to him and turn ourselves to him, something begins to grow in us. We become more and more like Jesus on every day. More like him in love. As we walk in the spirit, we walk in love. We begin to walk in peace. We begin to walk in mercy and kindness, etc., etc., etc. It's for you and I. The Holy Spirit, His presence, is God's presence in our lives, His conscious presence that guides us at every step of the way. How can I operate daily now in the Holy Spirit's power in my life? And this is in conclusion, you have to realign your satellite dish regularly towards Him on an ongoing basis. My brother and I share a cabin, our families, and I used to have a satellite dish. It was a good working relationship. He paid for it. I used it. Worked wonderful. And he had all the sports you could imagine on that. But the thing was, either the cabin shifts with the, you know, frost freeze cycle, I don't know, or maybe the wind, or something bumps it, and all of a sudden you don't have the signal. Got to get the tech out there, do the XYZ thing, and get that thing lined up so that you get a perfect signal again. It's like maintenance. You know, in our lives, all the influences that we have in our life that would want to make us move away from God, it kind of bumps our antenna around a little bit. I need to consciously, as an effort, yield myself over to the Spirit of God to realign on a daily basis the things that would want to corrupt, the things that would want to hold you back, those thoughts in your mind that tell you your life is not worth living, those thoughts in your mind that challenge who you are as a person, those thoughts that tell you that you shouldn't be worth anything to anybody. All the things that haunt you, lie to you, bring you down. The behaviors that you have that you seem like you can't get past. All of that just keep lining up. Lining up. And the Spirit of God brings His Word alive as if it had never been heard before, and it becomes personal and impactful to you as you read God's word for what it is, a living thing. The Holy Spirit does that work in us, and we begin to have a relationship with him that is one of power and one of grace and a one of freedom, a freedom for you, your children, and for all of us. As it says this year, since we live by the Spirit... Let us follow the Spirit's leading in every part of our lives. Let the Holy Spirit direct you in your life. Maybe he'll put a challenge in your life to say, you know, you got to let go of these certain things so that you don't keep on falling down. Listen to that. Pay attention to that. Be obedient to that. When the Lord leads you to do something else, be sensitive to his leading. And always talk to him, asking, Lord, have your way in my life. And as we do that, we grow more and more and more in the freedom that Christ has given us by the fruits of the Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. I thank you, Lord, that we can be a part of your larger family. Lord, I thank you, Lord, that you have brought us to the winning team. We have already won. And I thank you for your finished work, Lord Jesus, on the cross. Lord, I pray that we would have the joy of your presence in our lives. May we walk in it on a daily basis, Lord. And I thank you, Lord, for the power that you give us today. Thank you, Lord. 
And as we take this moment, this holy moment right now, we just want to just take a moment to just say, Lord, work in my life. Work in my life. Allow the Spirit of God just to speak to you now. And if there is something in your life right now, you say, Lord, I want to give this up, or Lord, I'm reaching out to you now. I'm going to ask you right now, without anyone looking, just to raise your hand and say, Lord, I need to let this go, and I need you to take control. Lord, something that's happened in the past. Lord, something that I'm doing today. Lord, whatever it is, these struggles, these battles, Lord, I give them to you that you would lead me. Lord, help me now. I see those hands just reach out to him to say, this is a moment, Lord, that I am recommitting myself to you right now. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that your presence is here. And for some of you, you may be new, uh, never been in a church before. Maybe you've never heard of God's love before, that God is actually love and that he actually cares for you and he's done something to make a path for you to know him through the person in Jesus Christ. That is impacting your heart. You say, Lord, I want to know you. I want that. You can receive that today as simply with a hand of faith, just basically saying, Lord, I want what you have for me. It's not just for somebody else. It's for me on a first-name basis. And by so doing, saying, Lord, forgive me. Change my life. You can receive that free gift, that costly gift today. If that's in your heart, you raise your hands too and just say, Lord, I want to receive that today in Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Lord, I thank you for this moment. Lord, we pray for Canada. We pray for every person in this room and everything in between. Lord, may you be glorified. We love you, Lord. May this holy moment be a moment that we remember, that we walk in the freedom that is in ours, that is in Christ Jesus by the power of your Spirit. We thank you for that, Lord, and receive it now. And all God's people say, Amen.